Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. Hi, this is Julie Dolan. This is Liz Dolan. This is Sheila Dolan. This is Monica Dolan. This is Leanne Dolan. News, talk, and laughs. We tackle the world one cup of coffee at a time. You're listening to Satellite Sisters. To Satellite to go. Sisters to go. Today about the Writers Guild strike. We're here in Burbank, as we said. There are a lot of picket lines around town, uh, but there was a there was a paragraph in the paper that really made me laugh because it was a writer on a picket line saying the problem is picketing with people who turn out comedies for a living can be pretty funny. So he say he had to turn to his buddy and say, stop making me laugh. It doesn't look good. Everybody who drives up, we're just laughing. They'll think we're not serious. <laughs> well, maybe it was our next guest because he was on the picket line yesterday, and he's a funny guy. He's the creator and executive producer of Everybody Loves Raymond, which now, of course, is in syndication. If you didn't watch it on regular TV, you can now see it pretty much 24 hours a day. He's also the author of a very, very funny book called You're Lucky, You're Funny. It's just out in paperback. Hey, Phil Rosenthal, welcome to Satellite Sisters. Oh, hello, sisters. How are you? <laughs> was that you? Were you cracking your friends up yesterday on the picket lines? I tell you the truth, I was too exhausted. <laughs> I, I, it's four hours of marching up and down with a sign like a, I'm not a teamster, I'm a writer. I sit and I write. I don't, I don't march up and down. I mean, I, I... Were you chanting? Did you guys come up with any good chants, Phil? Yeah, call a podiatrist is a good chance. <laughs> Let me lie down for a half hour is another good chance. Please. I, it was, it's very, uh, it, try marching around for four hours. Yeah, right. holding up a sign. That's well, hard. Well, yeah, the sign isn't so bad, but the, just just on your feet, four hours is hard. And and I know people who really work for a living; they can do this. But writers, you know, <laughs> you're sitting, you're sitting or lying down most of your time. Most of the time, yes. Right. So, just talk a couple of minutes about the about the strike because it is a big national story, and yes. we're worried about our favorite shows. What's going to happen to Friday Night Lights if this goes yeah, on too long? You won't see it anymore. I know. But you, as the showrunners they say you've been both a producer and a writer you do both and so you're kind of on both sides of this issue but yesterday you were marching with the writers they just want a few more cents a dvd do you feel like they're totally in the right or can you see the producer this is the most black and white issue ever okay this is the writers are 100 percent right the the main issue is you want to get paid for your work that's yeah, right. Yeah. That's we all. And that, that I think everybody can understand. Right. You do a job, you would like to be paid for it. So if the if the studios and the networks they take your show or your movie and they put it on the internet and they make money from it charging advertisers, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
and keep it all and don't give you any. Is that fair? Not fair. It doesn't seem fair to us either, Phil. This is Liz. It just seems you're not asking them to give you money they don't have. You're asking them to share some of the money they are making from your work. And when we say money that they're making, they're making billions and billions of dollars. Right. So a little for the creative community. And by the way, it's not just the writers. We just happen to be first Mm -hmm. on the picket line because our contract was up first. The actors and directors, they're, they're next. Mm-hmm. Now, your wife is an actor. Yes. Uh, she was in uh, Everybody Loves Raymond. She, she played... played Amy, yes. uh, Robert's uh, wife, on the show. It's an interesting story how she got that part. You know how she got that part? She slept with the producer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow, some things in Hollywood never change. I recommend Phil. it. <laughs> Monica Haran, of course, is your yes. wife's name. But now, does this put you at odds, though, with actors that you know? Because now they're out of work. I mean, what is it? feeling like on a set when something like this happens? Cause Can I tell you the truth? We, we were out there yesterday, and you see, if you go on the Internet or, or read in the papers, all the actors are coming out mm-hmm. because this is their fight, too. Mm-hmm. Again, we just happen to be the first ones out there because our contract was up first. Do you think it's going to go on a long time, Phil? I hope not. I'm yeah. tired. I hope not, too. <laughs> One <laughs> day tired. you're tired. I have to go back today. One to five. I have to go back. It's very, oh, my goodness. It's, it's uh, but... I do enjoy it, and you talked about people laughing on that. There is a feeling of camaraderie. There is a feeling, oh, I don't get to see you all the time. Hey, here, we have four hours. What's going on? Yeah. Right? <laughs> What's new with you? How's the family? How's the kids? Everybody has the cell phones with pictures on them, and we look. And, and then a car comes by, and you, you wave your sign, and hopefully they honk and uh, disrupt the work that's going on inside the office. Oh, is that the goal of the yeah, honking? Of course. Right. Oh, yeah, I'm of sure course. everything is grinding to a halt because well, of the like honking. The whole, we'd like the whole world to stop mm-hmm. until this is settled, right? But uh, I don't know how to do that. Are but, you glad that uh, You're Lucky You're Funny is out in paperback now? Because I think a year from now we're going to see a lot of sh- show writers actually um, writing books because of the strike. So I it's a good thing you got out of I think everybody should turn off their TVs and not go to the movies and read my book. Okay. <laughs> we think so too, Phil. It's yes. a really, really funny book. It's a hilarious Thank book. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, if you really want to know what it's like behind the scenes on any show in Hollywood or if how you get started yes. or, you know, how you can get your work on, this is critical reading. You're lucky you're funny. Thank and you. Basically, it's, it's you know, take your family, Phil, and exploit them. <laughs> it's pretty much the lesson, right? You guys might have a show in you. We oh, yeah. That's what Leon was just saying. We Phil. wanted to pick your brain on that a little bit, Phil. We figure you're the man that could help us shape up a concept. I'm here for you. Okay. Okay, here's the thing. We'll we, meet you on the picket line. How about that? You've got fine. four hours. We can work it all out. Yeah, we, we can talk, but we can't sell it until this is over. <laughs> We've right. been through this before, okay? We worked with an unnamed production company. They were going to turn Satellite Sisters, the idea, into a show. And it was it was a half-hour drama or a half-hour sitcom. Then it was a one-hour drama. Then it was a one-hour dramedy, okay? Really? So okay. it went through some changes, but here's the final pitch. So, yeah. you know, we kind of think, Phil, Satellite Sisters, five sisters, at the, po- at the time, we were living on two different continents, three different cities, yeah. doing a radio show. We all have very different lives. We thought, pretty good concept. You it's know? perfectly valid concept. Yeah. Yes. Like, just in general, our actual lives are pretty good. Yeah. You know, we have single women, divorced women, empty nesters, young kids. We, we had all the demos covered, really. Right. Cover a lot of bases. So in the final treatment... We all... I just laugh every time I think of it because it's like a sitcom, what they did to us, Phil. Go so, ahead. first of all, five sisters cut down to three. Okay. We knew that was going to happen. We knew, we knew that. Oh, boy, that's rough at Thanksgiving. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and then. Who's the two left out? Oh, my goodness. Exactly. And okay. then we're all 10 years younger. 
10 of to course. 15. We yes, were, we were fine with that. We were fine with that. And, oh, okay. And 20 pounds thinner. Excellent. Sure. That's fine. But then, this is the mystery. Okay, they made us all doctors. <laughs> <laughs> they made, they really did. They really did. Because there's not enough doctors on TV. We were a doctor we radio show. We were, it was just, and not just us. They made our dad a world-class heart surgeon. And he was thrilled because he's like a steel executive. So he's like, I've always wanted to be a heart surgeon. This is great. And then when our mom said, well, what am I? I had to say, you're dead, frankly. Of course. There's and, no reason. Why should we pay another actor? If, no. Uh, well, dad had married a younger dermatologist, Phil. Yes. You needed the evil stepmother, who was the dermatologist, which is the metaphor for being skin deep. This that's, is fantastic. That's what they explained to us in the meeting. You because they know that you know they have this, they have you guys, so you can bring a lot to this new concept uh, uh, based on your life experience. It was just, and sometimes you're sitting in the meeting, you're going, "I don't know. Do we need to be doctors?" But we didn't know. We never and sat so through a TV I get that meeting all the time. All you do. The time. What is the most unbelievable thing people have ever said to you? Like, oh, if if you could take that character and turn well, it sure. into. Oh, we got such notes when we started. Uh, uh, you know, the brother scares me. <laughs> I, I would have much less of the brother. In fact, I don't really, I, I would feel uncomfortable with him near the children. Don't show him near the children. <laughs> Are you crazy? Uh, also, here was a good one. Uh, uh, this was a lady, a uh, female executive uh, at the network, uh, got in my face early on and said, uh, if Raymond doesn't help out around the house, women won't like him. And I said, well, why did they marry him? <laughs> <laughs> we got lots of notes, like like uh, right after the table reading, which is the thing at the, the beginning of the production week where you hear the script out loud for the first time mm-hmm. of the very first episode. We, then we go back for notes, and then we hear from one top-level guy. At the end of this script, Raymond says, maybe to the parents, maybe you shouldn't come over so much anymore, right? Mm-hmm. So what's the next episode he wanted to know? Yeah. If he tells them that. I said, well, just off the top of my head, they don't listen to him. (laughs) (laughs) If anyone's ever had parents. Right? (laughs) Why Why do they come over? So much. Why do they? And they don't. Uh, you know, what? Wh- they, they don't even ring the doorbell. Yes, they don't ring the doorbell because it's the end of television. If they have to ring the doorbell every time, <laughs> they have no show. We're talking to Phil Rosenthal. He's got a really, really funny new book out called "You're Lucky You're Funny: How Life Becomes a Sitcom." It's out in paperback now. So we were um, kind of concerned that they killed off our mother and transformed our father. Yes, I but would it, be. But at least it was so like wildly fictional. They wouldn't be sending us notes every week. But with you turning your own life and your own family into a sitcom, I mean, how how did your parents take it? Uh, (laughs) Sometimes, you know, uh, like at one episode I sent my – this really happened. I sent my parents a toaster. It was the cast and crew gift. And I sent them a toaster, and it said Everybody Loves Raymond on it because I thought they would enjoy it. They're proud of the show, and they supposedly – uh, like me. Right. So I thought that they would like it again. I didn't hear from them. So I thought maybe it was lost. So I called them up. I said, did you get the gift? And my father answered the phone. And he said, what? The what? And I said, I sent you a gift. Did you get it? He says, oh, uh, yes, yes. Thank you. Very nice. I said, well, did you see what it was? He goes, what? It was a toaster. What? And I said, oh, I know what happened. He didn't open the box. 
to see what it said. He just thought it was a uh, go get the box and open it. I'll get the good reaction right on the phone. It'll be delighted. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a long pause, and he says, uh, I don't have it with me right now. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I said, what did you do? He says, uh, your mother wanted a coffee maker. <laughs> they took it to Bloomingdale's, lied to them. And they take everything back right? to Bloomingdale's. Lied to them and traded my gift for a coffee maker. And our joke in the writer's room was that somebody probably got that toaster from Bloomingdale's, got home, opened it up, saw what it was, put it back in the box, took it back to Bloomingdale's and said, we'd like the Fraser toast. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking to Phil Rosenthal. There are a million stories like that in his book, You're Lucky You're Funny, How Life Becomes a Sitcom. It's just out in paperback. And uh, because the TV writers will be on strike, this is an excellent, uh, excellent thing to fill in with. You know, Phil, I love sitcoms, and I'm worried that they're dying. Are oh, they dying? Yeah. Yes, at the moment. But it'll be back. As soon as somebody writes one that's a hit, everyone will say, let's go over there and start imitating that now. Okay. You know, it's all cyclical, right? Yeah. So it'll You don't come... think we're going to get more reality TV? Yes, mm. you will, especially now with the strike. You'll get mm. a lot. And but this 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 glut of reality shows, you know, it could signal something larger than just a trend, and that is the end of civilization. Okay. <laughs> it seems to always come yeah. back to that. Yeah, yeah, it does. I think yeah. we're close with The Bachelor. I don't know if you've ever seen that show. But... You, Phil, can you stay with us a few minutes longer? As long as you like. I like the system. Because <laughs> I know you're going to Russia to help work with Russian writers on creating sitcoms. And Julie lived in Russia. And I think she can tell you that they are not funny at all, Phil. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> stay with us. Our guest is Phil Rosenthal. You're lucky you're funny is the name of his book out in paperback. This is Liz, and I am sitting here with Leanne. And where are we, Leanne? We are at the Paley Center for Media in beautiful Beverly Hills, California, Liz. Right. The beautiful Paley Center. You hear us mention all the time that this is where we produce Satellite Sisters. And we've gotten some email from you wondering... What goes on at the Paley Center? So there's a beautiful facility here in Beverly Hills. There's another one in the center of New York City. They have all kinds of fantastic events, programs for adults and kids going on all the time. So if you want to see their schedule, their location, and any more information about this organization, go to paleycenter.org. That's paleycenter.org. There's just loads going on here. Liz, when we walk out our door... Uh, yes. First of all, it makes me laugh because we're sitting in the wing donated by Larry David. Yes. Okay. <laughs> From Curb Your Enthusiasm. Uh-huh. And as many of you will remember that particular episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm where Ted Danson got all the credit and oh, Larry no. did not. Oh, no. It was shot right out there. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. And true Curb Your Enthusiasm style. So I get to look at that funny, funny picture of Larry David. And then along the wall are all the pictures of all like the full cast, producers, writers of all the television shows. They do fantastic programs in the fall and in the spring with complete casts, including the writers and executive producers of some of your favorite TV shows. You know, it is a museum of television and radio. So, for instance, if you visited us today, Mm -hmm. uh, Liz, you could go right upstairs to the screening room. It's Dean Cain's birthday. So they're screening several (laughs) episodes of Superman. 
You're kidding. Yeah. Wow. And then you can also see a couple of episodes of Friends. Number, oh. Voted number five. In case sit- there are any you yeah, haven't seen. Number five sitcom of all time. And then just to wrap up your day here, you know what else you can watch at the end of that? A Flintstones episode. <laughs> because that's some vintage television yeah. if there ever was one. So that's just one day here in and the And that's life. just TV. How about radio? Yeah. They have like radio files. You can sit here in the listening room, mm-hmm. listen to all kinds of classic radio. So check it out. PaleyCenter.org has all the information about the programs, about the locations. It's really a good thing to try out if you're visiting either L.A. or New York. We encourage you to go check out the Paley Center for Media. And just for Satellite Sisters regulars, you're really going to appreciate this tidbit. Guess what's right across the street from the one in Beverly Hills? Baja Fresh. the Satellite Sisters, and you can always listen to us online at SatelliteSisters.com. I'm Liz Dolan. I'm here with my sisters, Julie Dolan and Leanne Dolan. Our guest is Phil Phil Rosenthal. His really funny new book is out now in paperback. It's You're Lucky You're Funny, How Life Becomes a Sitcom, Leanne. Now, he created Everybody Loves Raymond, Mm -hmm. so now they're sending him to Russia to learn to teach the Russians how to create sitcoms. Phil, why? How? The president of Sony asked me, uh, they had just started to do sitcoms. They never had sitcoms in Russia before because, right. like you said, they're not so funny. Yeah, so Ju- they- <laughs> Julie lived there for four and a half years, right, Joel? Yeah, it, so it's the Russian TV. They just never had anything like that on There's Russian There's nothing TV. like it. So no. just they, you know what the first sitcom was there two years ago? The Nanny. The Nanny. I was. That's what I was going to tell you because yeah. it was exactly like the American show. They right. had a Russian woman with that Fran Drescher <laughs> voice right. in Russian. So Speaking I Russian. think. This is what I think you need to check when you get over there sure. to see if there is a show called Everybody Loves Yuri because <laughs> yeah. I'm afraid they've already ripped off your show. No, no, that's what they're doing now. That's and they want me to go there okay. and uh, show them how to make our show into a Russian show, help guide them through the pilot process and everything, and then we're making a documentary about me going over there. Fantastic. So I have yeah. two pieces of advice for you. Please. Okay, first of all, you need thick-soled shoes, rubber-soled <laughs> shoes. I got them. Okay, now, you can't wear L.L. Bean boots because they'll laugh at you and you'll get beat up in the metro if you wear those. No, I got, I mean, just, you have I got old man shoes, those MBTs, you know. That's what you need. That's, That's what, what you I need because the cold comes up from the pavement of those really big, you know, paver blocks that they this, have. I'm scared more than anything about the 30 below zero in Moscow. It's it's Well, the sisters have been there. It's nippy. You just got to get yourself a good hat and a coat and, and, and the good shoes. That will help. Here's this, my second suggestion pelmeni you want to write that word down because <laughs> that's re- pelmeni it's it is like a russian tortellini and that's really about the only thing you want to eat over there <laughs> really? okay you I can have pelmeni had all these fantastic well they have now though. they have fancy restaurants but yeah. i'm talking about like when you're trying to work on the sitcom and they yeah. say okay phil what would you like to eat for breakfast you say pelmeni and they'll bring you a bowl of it's in a hot broth and yeah. there are these little tortellinis very good then lunchtime comes around they say phil what do you want to eat yeah. and they you know they have a lot of salads with mayonnaise which you're not going to want right. you just say pelmeni okay really dinner what do you want for dinner phil you're not you, you have borscht once or twice yeah. but then 
all the other stuff, you, you're just not going to want to eat the, that meat. And who knows where the fish comes came from? Really? Pelmeni. That's that's the key. <laughs> Julie, Pelmeni. Julie, you know I what? think you're I'm scaring already him. sick of the pelmeni. No, you're going to love it. You're going to love it. <laughs> it's it's good. good. It's hearty. Oh it's it, it provides substance. You know, it's really good for you. So, but that he's would such be a foodie, Julie. Phil Rosenthal is a foodie. There's I'm reading be... about Cafe Pushkin and. G- oh yeah, oh, we went there. We went. We went there. No, they do now. Now they do have some spectacular restaurants, and I would put Cafe Pushkin on the list. And where all the supermodels go, Cafe Vogue. That's how you go. Just say that. Vogue. Cafe Vogue. <laughs> That's how they say it. What am I going there for? To get the gangster- angry? No, the gangsters and I'm the supermodels. I'm just going to get angry if no, I No, it's go good there. people watching. I can't do anything. I'm married with two kids. No, you've got to go and watch this film. <laughs> I watch, and it just makes me mad. <laughs> You know, in the Russian women, we're very little close. Yes, they do. Yeah. Really? Even at 30 Below? Even at 30 Below. We couldn't believe it when we went, Phil. They're very aggressive dressers. All right. I'll have a look. Yeah. All right, Phil Rosenthal, thank you for joining us on Satellite Sisters. I love the sisters. Very Phil, nice. Thank you. Thank Phil you. and his wife are going to be performing this weekend at the Palm Beach Performing Arts Center. They tell you about the arguments they had in their real marriage, and then you get to see the scenes from Everybody Loves Raymond. Oh, that would be fantastic. Fantastic. So check that out if you're in the Palm Beach area. You're Lucky You're Funny is the name of the book. It's now out in paperback. Good luck on the strike, Phil. We hope you're back at work very soon. Welcome to our lives. We are the Satellite Sisters. I'm Liz Dolan, and I'm here with my sisters, Julie, Sheila, Monica, and Leanne. Here's a little secret you don't really know about us. We talk to a lot of people on the show. Every day you listen. We're some really fun people. More often than not, though, they're somewhere else in the world. We're talking to them on the phone. So it's very special for us to have someone visit us in the studio. And today it's particularly special because our visitor is one of our all-time favorite satellite misters. Sitting with us here in the studio right now is Alan Alda. Welcome back to Satellite oh, thank Sisters. Thank you. Thank you. And I love, to be, I love being on the program. What a great idea, the Satellite Sisters. A great idea to have five nuns do a radio <laughs> show. What? It's so nice. I know. Well, you know, actually, once we did interview someone yeah. who thought they were talking to nuns. <laughs> yes, really. And after we fed, the interview was over. It was Katerina Vitt. Katerina Vitt. skater. Yeah. And what like how did that skew the interview? Well, you know, she's kind of a wild gal, Katarina Vitt. She's lived a wild life, and it was just about halfway through when she realized, "Oh, you're not real sisters." <laughs> so I can speak freely now. Yeah. <laughs> so she let it rip once she knew that we weren't members of a particular order. Yeah. But, but so know- why do you wear these wimples? I don't get it. <laughs> But you can appreciate this a little bit because you have daughters, right? Yep. And you write a lot. Your new book, which is such a pleasure to read, Things I Overheard While Talking to Myself, a lot of this is you giving advice to your daughters about the kind of life you want them to lead. Have you always been an advice giver? Does that come <laughs> yeah. naturally to you? Yeah, but or you does know, that come with wisdom? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> wisdom maybe comes later. I don't know. But I always, uh, 
was trying to get my my kids. We have three daughters, and and I was always always trying to talk to them at the dinner table about world events and get them curious about the world. And their eyes would sort of roll off to the side, you know. <laughs> so, so at one point, when when our oldest daughter was graduating from college, I was asked to uh, to speak at her commencement. That must be a little intimidating. Well, it was, but I leapt at it because now I could talk for thirty minutes, and she'd have to listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so that was your strategy. Yeah. This is for you, right there in row twenty-two. And I spoke directly to her by name. I did. I, I said, you know, she's standing in for everybody, and I talked. To her, and of course, I had advice for her because we we wish for the best for our kids, and and advice is a weird thing, you know. When you when you're giving advice, I think you're talking to yourself. Absolutely, I, yeah. I, there's, and there's there's this tremendous wish and hope involved. You hope that this young person will turn out to be like what the advice asks them to be. You also hope and wish that you already are like that, right. which, which is probably a little farther from the truth. You're trying to create the illusion that, yes, you, are, you're, you're, you have achieved these you're, things. You're, you're hoping that you yourself can, can do this, you know? So, so that's, in a way, when I went back and started to think about these things I said and realized mm. I had been talking to myself, that's why the book is called Things I Overheard While Talking to Myself, because I'm, I'm at a point now where I'm really trying to figure out the meaning of my life and and what I care about and what and what'll give me a kind of a a long lasting sense of satisfaction mm-hmm. well that's the paradox yeah. that I decided is at the center of your book. On the one hand, you're all about make sure your life has meaning, and you, you talk about that in many of the speeches and the other things you've written in the book. On the other hand, you say, you give a piece of advice, don't go off in search of meaning with a capital M. So how do we live a life of meaning <laughs> without going off in search of meaning? <laughs> this is why I needed you here in person right. to talk to well, us. Well, that's why I put it at the end of the book. So you... So you <laughs> <laughs> So I'd get you to read the whole rest of the book first before I tell you that it's quixotic. And the thing is, the funny thing is that the more I, the more I tried to figure out, man, I really personally did try to figure out the meaning of my own life, which is odd because even I thought that I had a meaningful life mm-hmm. up until the time I asked myself that question. And when you asked yourself that question, I didn't realize you had a brush with death in Chile. Yeah. And you were really forced to look death yeah, in the face. And that's what brought it on. And and uh, I wasn't. This is this is amazing. I wasn't afraid of dying. In fact, I was in so much pain from an, an intestinal obstruction. I would have been glad to die to get rid of the pain. Mm-hmm, and, really? that's, and it's not a joke. It's true. And th- this wonderful doctor, Doctor Zapeda in Chile, where I was at the time in a small town, he saved me. And when I woke up, I was so glad to be alive that I was more more alert to life than I had been before when I was enjoying my life so much. And how old were you when that happened? Four years ago. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah. It was that recent? Yeah. Yeah. So, so for these, and these four years now, during which time wonderful things have happened to me. Right. You've had a great four years. Yeah. Yeah. That, Emmy, Tony, year. Oscar nomination, yeah, right. best-selling book, yeah. your last book, and Never this Have book Your too, Dog This stuff. book is going to be a best-seller uh, in a day or so. So, uh, on the New York Times bestseller list. So the, all of these things would never have happened if I had died that night, October mm-hmm. 19th, <laughs> four years ago. So I'm, I'm, I'm very much aware of what it's like to, to enjoy life now more than I ever was. And I'm therefore very interested in making this 
new life than I have for free account. I mean, I'm. So I'm, what's so different? Well, what but, are you doing differently now that you wouldn't have done four years this ago? This is the thing. Looking back over all, that's why the, that paradox is there you talked about. Looking for meaning, I find, after all this thinking about it, looking for it doesn't seem to do it. But, but and this sounds really new agey, weirdy, you know, 60s, yeah. 60s stuff. Being aware of what's happening to me right now, every now that I'm in, is is what gives me a sense of being alive more than anything else. And if I can keep that going right up to the end, it may mm-hmm. not give meaning to my life, but it kind of obliterates the need to look for meaning. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right here. I'm too busy to look for I, meaning because I am I'm present I, right I, now, yeah, exactly. living in the moment here. Yeah. I know the and moment is in line at McDonald's. But, no, but, <laughs> but does that no, mean The other you, day, look at my finger. I caught my finger in the door in the Oh, it's airplane. all black and blue, Julie. Yeah. You can't see yeah, it. Yeah, Julie, Ouch. I haven't heard a word from you yet. <laughs> When, when, the, when you're thinking about living in the now, does that mean are you a bigger tipper than you were before? <laughs> I mean, what? But now, how does that how does that play out in your day to day? You know, life? it's funny. I hadn't thought about that, but I am a slightly bigger tipper. Okay. Isn't that funny? I, I I must just be more aware of the other person there. You mm-hmm. know what I notice is when I when I'm and by the way, I'm not. This doesn't just go back to the '60s. So I'm not I'm not merely old-fashioned. I'm really old-fashioned because this goes back to Marcus Aurelius Ah. 2,000 years ago who said, all we have is now. And a scientist told me uh, lately... I thought Buddha said that. But all right, Marcus Aurelius. Buddha came later. He was like, he was, he was, uh, he was just before the 60s. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, uh, A scientist told me, a brain scientist told me that our awareness of now only lasts about five seconds. And everything prior to that is memory. So this five seconds keeps wow. moving along a track, and I'm trying to stay up with it, you know, and not get into memory. When I just said Marcus Aurelius before, that's no longer now. Uh-huh. That, that's, we're all remembering that. Okay. See, yet another paradox. That's, this, is, this is so much deeper than we thought we were getting ourselves but into. But when I, when I do try to stay now, stay here and be in now, I'm trying to say it in a way that's more 1969 than 62, I'm, I find that colors are more vibrant. People are more interesting. More interesting thoughts come up in the back of my head. I like it a lot better. Wow. Alan Alda is with us. Of course, you can recognize that voice. The title of his new book is Things I Overheard While Talking to Myself. It's full of a lot of really interesting thoughts about how we should all conduct our lives. One of the pieces of information you give, I think it's to one of your daughters in one of the speeches, is be potent. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was a very unusual and inspirational choice of words. Why potent? What is that about for you? Well, I think for me it's about being strong and being creative and letting things come from you that uh, that you maybe didn't even know were in there. I want I want my daughters. I always wanted my daughters to be uh, to be courageous and 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 brave and 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 have chutzpah. Mm-hmm. And I and I, t- I told my oldest daughter at that point that you know nothing important was ever accomplished without chutzpah. The signers of the Declaration of Independence had chutzpah, mm-hmm. and and it's a uh, did I say chutzpah in Texas, Julie? <laughs> I, I'm looking for a spell check on yeah. that because I don't think we have that word here. It's ch-u-t-z. It's, good, it's a good thing I've lived in a lot of foreign countries. Yeah. So I'm able to follow along. Well, well I, I, I teach everybody uh, who doesn't know. I teach them uh, 
chutzpah and kishkas and things like that. But because, does that mean? But that's interesting about your daughters. Does yeah. that mean that you have? You know, I think daughters were always brought up to be nice. How yeah. does that play? Well, I don't. I mean, nice is okay as long as it uh, it just oozes out of you. But I don't. I don't know if it's something to aspire to, especially mm-hmm. the version of nice that most people have, which is passive people who aren't. Uh, uh, with no chutzpah. With no chutzpah, not getting what's due them. Mm-hmm. You know? do, are, do your daughters have chutzpah? Is that how yeah. you characterize them? Did it rub off? Did yeah. anything you said to them rub off? <laughs> yes. Because yeah, that's yeah. what See, Liam's parents. a parent. She just yes. wants to know yeah. if she's having any impact <laughs> yes. on no, her children. Well, two things you have to know is they don't listen <laughs> and and they hear. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, someone once said to me, they're only listening to 50% of what you say. You just don't know what 50%. <laughs> yeah, you know, and right. that, that I've experienced with my two boys. Uh, two boys. How old are they? They are 9 and 12. Oh, that's, those are great ages. Oh, they're all great ages. Well, now you sit down with your grandchildren. You wrote about this. You have ethical conversations with Be- your daughter Beatrice has kids, right? Yeah. And you just decide to take on ethics with them. How well, come? we would go. I take. I pick them up after school, and I take them out to a tea shop, and I'd have tea, and they'd have uh, chamomile or something, and we'd talk about ethical questions. And they would be like seven years old, eight years old. You know, isn't that great? <laughs> oh, it's. They didn't actually know. I just said we're going to have a grown-up conversation now. Okay, so uh-huh. that, that sort of interested them. So then I would pick ethical issues from the news. Like there was the lady who burnt herself with uh, hot coffee from a fast food restaurant. And she sued them for like $100 million. So I said, so what do you think about that? Should she, is she right? Should she have sued? She burned herself with their hot coffee. Yeah, they said, but but she should have known it would be hot. And 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 then and then we would bring, introduce new information. And then they'd, they'd have to like put that into the mix and they couldn't always get the answer to the question. Nobody could. Even I'm not sure the jury could. Right. But but they got the idea of thinking about what was right and how people how people should treat one another and that kind of thing. And you feel like that's your part of your job as a grandparent. No, too. it's fun. Oh, it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> Who do you admire for people out there in the world? You write a lot about Thomas Jefferson in the book. Yeah. Why why someone like that? Who are the people that you would pick out? You know, I, I also write a lot about the great physicist Richard Feynman, and he comes closer to me to being a hero uh, for me. Why? Because he was so curious and so interested in being honest with himself. He didn't want to lie to himself, and he didn't want anybody else to lie to him. And he, and he too, was very aware of what was going on around him. Uh-huh. And was, we were talking about being, being aware of now until the last minute. Yeah. He was dying of cancer, and he said to his doctor, when I'm on the way out, I don't want you to give me an anesthetic because if I'm going to die, I want to be there when I do. Wow. Towards the end of the book, uh, a friend of yours. So not only do you ask probing questions, but it's a friend of yours who says to you, right, yeah. what is the commencement speech you would give on your deathbed? Yeah, I thought that was a wonderful <laughs> idea because you, it's it's a sort of an invitation to think about if you have no more time left, what what's the last thing you want to make sure you communicate to yeah. to young people, you know, who are, you think, waiting oh. for these great words? <laughs> who are not listening, <laughs> as we've right. established that. Yeah. Right, who all th- we, they're listening to the commencement talk thinking they're on their deathbed. <laughs> um, and and uh, it, it, make, it, it did make me think um, more more to the point about what I thought about things. And it kind of boils down to to one word to, for me, I think, and that's to notice. I get, I, and it's not, and by the way, you know, 
I'm really not trying to give advice to other people in this book. I'm trying to report on what I went through yeah. when I tried to figure myself out. Because I think that if, if that's an honest report, it, it would be maybe interesting, might be entertaining, might be funny. And if it turns out to be useful to somebody, that would be nice too. But I hope it's a it's a good reading experience. Yeah, but it is true. It's because people force people forced you to think about these things by asking you these questions or yeah. asking you to do these speeches. And I think most of us, because there's no external force asking us like, tell us the meaning of life, or please, where you were Hawkeye Pierce, we're a bunch of doctors. What should we? How should we behave? <laughs> let me let me let me ask you, you, you three sisters, mm-hmm. you, and, and you've had. It sounds like you have a good family relationship, although two of them don't seem to be speaking to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, That's the JV team. And you're, mean, you're varsity team material. What's the <laughs> what's the uh, what's the meaning of life to your in terms of your lives? Is, do you all three have different senses of that? I bet we would all answer family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Or just sense of connection. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. that it's the people you're connected to in your life. That's what gives your life meaning. And if you didn't, and sometimes you have to work harder than you want to at maintaining those connections, but it's just incredibly fundamental. So, Julie, if they think family is so important, what are you doing in Dallas, Texas? <laughs> this is the closest I've been to them in years. So I, I'm happy about that. No, I've been, I was living in Russia before oh, that. Oh, boy. How far away can you get? <laughs> so that's, yeah, that I think that's makes true, you ask the question. But yeah. it's not about, it's not about, it's certainly not about things or accomplishments. It mm. is about these relationships and how you nurture those relationships and that's what gives your your life meaning. You know, yeah. another thing we've always said is that not every conversation will change your life, but any conversation can. Mm. And mm. I think that spirit comes out of your book so much that you, you're always having these conversations with your daughters and with your grandchildren and with your friends. And I noticed a, a couple of years ago that I've been trying to learn how to listen well as an actor all my life. And it occurred to me that in in actual life, listening is very much like what it is on the stage, where you have to leave yourself open to be changed by the person you're listening to, or it's not real listening. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's how mm-hmm. I feel about it. If I if I'm talking to somebody I don't I know I don't agree with, uh-huh. if I say to myself, wait a second, instead of looking for an opening to defeat them in conversation, what if I really listen and see if they can change me for the better in some way? Maybe there's something in there that I haven't thought about. And when I do that, I'm much happier. I have a better connection with the person, and I feel like I'm not wasting my time. You could never do talk radio. I was just going <laughs> to say that. That's philosophy. Yeah, yeah you're right. <laughs> really very I, I, limited I, I, I'd time I'd have to listening. learn how to first I listen to what the caller is saying and then say, you idiot, and slam the phone down. <laughs> oh, it has just really been a pleasure to have you here. Alan Alda is our guest. His new book, Things I Overheard While Talking to Myself, is really wonderful. You'll enjoy it. Go buy it. There's more information about him and about his book at SatelliteSisters.com. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really loved it. Thank you. Bye, Julie. Bye. Like, we've been racking up conversations with some of our favorite satellite misters a lot lately. Yes. And we're very excited today to have Tom Brokaw with us. I have your whole bio in front of me, Tom. 
I just don't really think it's necessary for me to review. I think everyone knows everyone knows Tom Brokaw. But you have a brand new book out entitled Boom, Voice of the 60s, Personal Reflections on the 60s. And you know what I loved about it, Tom? Is your own sharing kind of like what a geek you were in the 60s. I was. I was uh, not a baby boomer because I was born just before World War II began in 1940. Uh-huh. And my uh, earliest memories were formed by that time. And then... There was a sea change in the country. We were at peace. We had unparalleled prosperity. Uh, I grew up in what I call the innocent 50s. It was a time when America could do pretty much what it wanted to at home and abroad, but there were strong undercurrents that were at play at that time. Uh, And you grew up in South Dakota, right? I did. I I grew up in working class communities in South Dakota. My father uh, I'd been a construction foreman, worked for the Corps of Engineers. My mother always worked uh, either at the post office or in retail shops downtown, uh, wherever we lived. And so I grew up in that kind of prototypical 50s environment. And then the 60s arrived, and by then I was married, living in California, really, when the 60s took hold, first in Atlanta and then in California. And it was... Uh, a pretty dramatic change in the environment around me, uh, contrasting with how I'd grown up. Yeah, it's clear in the way you write about it, because, of course, we think of you, Tom Brokaw, as being man of the world. You've been everywhere, seen everything. You're so cool when you're dealing with things, you know, world events breaking around you. And yet you write in Boom about, say, walking through Haight-Ashbury in the 60s and kind of being, like, shocked by what you were witnessing. Well, I think anybody would have been. Uh, <laughs> Still a little scary. These well, the, you know, the streets, I was just there again last weekend, uh, and it's now mostly a tourist attraction, although there are some holdovers from the old days. But you have We to like to see those. San Francisco was this elegant city that uh, was a favorite destination of almost everyone in the post-war years. And then suddenly there was this neighborhood that had been transformed into a separate universe. Kids from all over the country flocked there. Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead had a house. Janis Chaplin had a house. Everyone seemed to be, by my standards and by the by the conventions of the 50s, in uniform of some kind. Uh-huh. Long hair, uh, peasant dresses. Uh, obviously, by then, women were not wearing bras. There were lots of headbands, lots of macrame, <laughs> lots of puka shell necklaces. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just we're thinking back on that. So to a nice boy from South Dakota, this was right. well, I would have, But by then, I'd been living in California a while, and I, 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 you know, I was not naive. I'd been over at Berkeley that day. The first time I went there, I'd been at Berkeley covering a big demonstration there. So I knew what was going on. But this was the epicenter of it. Rock and roll blaring in the streets until late at night, drugs everywhere. And so I became intrigued by it, went back several times and got to know the director of the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic, David Smith, who's in my book and reflects uh-huh. on those times, and uh, began to uh, report on uh, what was, I, I think, home base for the counterculture. It's so fascinating. The book is entitled Boom, Voices of the 60s, Personal Reflections on the 60s and Today. So it's not just sort of a tale of those times. You went and you talked to a lot of people who were the movers and shakers in those times and asked them to think about what they were doing then and if they really accomplished anything, Tom. Why, why, it's such an interesting take on it. Why was that important to you? Well, I, I'm always interested in the consequences of history. Uh-huh. And uh, the 60s, really did divide up this country. The people who were on the barricades see the 60s through those prisms, the hippies 
see the 60s through their own prism. The, the more conservative people, like Pat Buchanan is in the book, see it as both a time of great opportunity for uh, the right in American politics, but also was repelled by a lot of what was going on at the time. And I thought if we could create a virtual dialogue in a reunion-like setting, maybe it would be useful to the country in planning how it goes forward from here. Julie, it's fascinating, isn't it? I know you've read it. I know, and in particular, I, we're going to talk about it in a little while, but the women's movement. I mean, Liz and I are the oldest Dolan sisters, so we are a full-fledged baby boomers. We were the you know, the first women to, to wear those finky little bow ties, Tom, and head <laughs> off to work, right. and we believed it all. We believed it was all going to work out. And right. it was interesting, so many of the reflections in the book about what the women's movement didn't accomplish during the 60s. Yeah, you know, I was surprised that when it brought up my own recollections of when I first went out to go look for a job, this is Liz, it was still, you know, there were columns of ads, help wanted F, and there were columns of ads, help wanted M. And that seems like that should have been 100 years ago, not 30 years ago. Well, I know, and it's... uh... You know, in fact, we're still struggling with it. Uh, I think that there is still unspoken discrimination, especially against women. If a, in a prospective employer looks at a young woman who uh, may have just gotten married and is thinking about having a child, um, you know, that becomes a factor. In, in Meredith's case, when we were first married in 1962, she had a far better college record than I did. I got a job immediately. <laughs> yeah. She was told by one personnel director after another, oh, honey, you're a newlywed, you're just going to get pregnant, and we don't want to deal with that. Yeah. So she ended up working uh, for a time in an employment agency that had been trying to place her and very quickly became their top performer. So it wasn't that she had an absence of skills. There was just a, an acute absence of appreciation. The country was really run by white middle-aged males, and um, many of them had grown up with the, the conventions of their own lives, and we're not about to change that. Right. Your wife is Meredith. You also have three daughters, and you share a lot of interesting perspectives in the book, Boom, um, from your daughter's point of view. But there's a story you tell about Meredith and her doctor-patient relationship that completely shocked me, Tom. This right. is Liz, when, when, that when she was delivering your first child. When our first child, uh, and her father was a doctor. We, she'd grown up in a medical family, and I think her doctor knew that. Nonetheless, uh, this doctor... When Meredith went in, uh, when, it was, when she went into labor and we went into the hospital, she went in blithely thinking everything was fine. Uh, I was not informed of anything after a, what seemed to be a, kind of a long period. The doctor came out and said, well, you have a, uh, a girl, but it was a difficult birth. The baby was in a severe breech position, and I had to give your wife, I had to put your wife under completely. He never told her that. He never told me that. He never asked her permission. That is so shocking. Leanne, I'm looking at the look on your face. It's hard to believe that your doctor would not tell you, the patient, what is going on with you, the patient, and your baby. He, and I he know. must have known. He must have I known. Know. I had a breech baby. I, you know. Believe me. The doctor knows. <laughs> so that's one of the things I know a lot of what you're, you're writing about is what has changed and what hasn't changed. Right. But in the, in the category of what has changed, wouldn't you say that it, at least there's not quite that paternalistic feeling towards women that there used to be, and that story with Meredith sort of points no, out? No, no. Uh, you know, uh, look, uh, society is now filled with women who are, look, we have Hillary Clinton is the leading candidate for president of the United States on the Democratic side at this time in the polls. We have a woman who's secretary of state, uh, very senior members of law firms, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor 
broke the gender bar on the U.S. Supreme Court. I was at a meeting on Thursday here in New York at the Museum of Natural History, which is run by Ellen Futter, who used to be the president of Barnard, meeting with the head of the Rockefeller Commission, Judith Roden, who used to be the president of Penn. Who's in your book. And these two very dynamic, highly qualified women were talking about some joint enterprises, and I sat back at the luncheon table and I thought, this is a perfect example of how far we've moved. But we still have the whole issue of the mommy track and all of its dimensions. And I had a pretty spirited discussion recently in South Dakota with the offspring of friends of mine from that time, and I said, look, you have to think about your lives and choices and and how we're going to make those choices. And you can't expect the corporate structure to just roll over and make arrangements for you, you're going to have to start forcing them within your own family, which I believe strongly. For me, well, for us here at Satellite Sisters, it was the women in the book and hearing their stories. That was the most fascinating. And especially the perspectives, the difference between your mother, your wife, Meredith, and your own daughters. Mm -hmm. You have three daughters. We're going to talk about what the bigwigs say about the mommy track, but what do your own daughters say about that? Well, I think that they're, um, it's a struggle. Uh, I'm being visited today by our middle daughter, who is about to give birth in three weeks to her second child. She works in the music industry, Congratulations. which has a little more flexibility, uh, but it's going to be tough uh, balancing uh, the demands of motherhood and the maternal bonds that come with it. She's got a terrific husband who is very helpful at home and is not uh, at all uh, resistant to the idea of fulfilling the part of the father well beyond the conventional expectations. Uh But these are are tough choices. And our eldest daughter is an emergency room physician in San Francisco, has two children, husband's a big-time radiologist, uh, has a very demanding practice. The kids are, like modern kids today, are in lots of things, choir practice, soccer, uh, that kind of thing. She finds herself going 18 hours a day and working shift work because – ER work is not gender specific. You know, you have to have the opera, the emergency room going 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Right. And it's hard to put that one on hold. So they're 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 trying to come to grips with it. And I think society has to work harder at deciding what kind of economic structure we want to have. I do believe that the computer, email, and the internet are going to be enormously important tools because it will allow. It provides a, a level of flexibility that we, yeah, and we can just work at home. A woman, a woman who's a lawyer has a baby. She can stay at home longer and work mm-hmm. right off the screen. Mm-hmm. Julie, know? I know you wanted to jump in here because one of the things that comes out a lot in Tom Brokaw's book, Boom, is that maybe some of the leaders of the women's movement in the 60s didn't really anticipate this part of where they were leading us. Right. You have that profile of Dr. Susan Miller, who is a primary care specialist and a grad of UCLA Medical School when there were very few female grads. But what she wrote at the end of her profile, that where she said what didn't happen in the women's movement was that women did not, what they didn't say about women was the most important thing that happens in society is that we perpetuate ourselves. Right. I mean, otherwise it comes to a halt if we don't have kids, raise them properly, educate them. Right. And I think that's right. For me, that was a big aha because they, they, they didn't figure that out when we right. went. They told us to go to work, Tom. Well, I know. I, they the told other... us to break through that glass ceiling. And you did, Julie. Congratulations. And, and we're they, exhausted. They, right. We're exhausted. They didn't say anything about child care and no, I babysitters. Agree. I agree. Listen, the hardest conversation you can have 
sometimes, especially with an unmarried young woman who's really on a career track, is that I have this a lot at the office. I say, you know, having a baby and raising that child appropriately is far more rewarding and far more important than covering the next news story. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't mean that you can't come back. We'd like you to come back. But don't let the idea of motherhood be denigrated or belittled or diminished or set aside in some fashion. There's a story in here about Anthony. You really say that to people? I hate to interrupt. I do. I, yeah, I do. I'm shocked that you can legally say that well, to people, listen, actually. I, I, I can say it because I'm the father of three daughters, and I can say when they come in and ask my advice about promotions or whatever, I say, put this into consideration. Mm-hmm. And well, I know you're Tom Brokaw and everything, so you get to say what you want. But it doesn't mean that those young women's bosses feel the same way that you do, no, and that them right. taking I time agree. off and coming back is going to be quite so such a good idea to their boss. No, it's and they and I, you know, I, I, I paint the harsh realities. I don't say that this is going to be a walk in the park. But what I think has happened is that women who do choose to go off and have a child and to take two or three years to do that, sometimes feel in the office space or in the workplace uh, a sense of guilt transferred to them by other women. And I think that's tough and that I think there have to be, I think there has to be more conversation about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that I think corporate structure has to be examined. Uh, it's, as I said earlier, it doesn't mean that uh, we're going to convert the entire economy so that we have long, extended maternal leaves, but we should have more opportunities for men to take time off. Yeah. And we should be talking about this. And couples need to make choices about who's going to go to work and who's going to stay at home. Mm-hmm. You know, in Boom, you talk to everyone from Nora Ephron to Gloria Steinem to Judith Roden. Do they have a different perspective now than they had in the 60s? How did they express that to you? Well, Are I they think surprised? They, I don't think it's uniform. I think Gloria still feels strongly that, uh, as I indicate in the book, that... Uh, uh, you know that the fathers have to step up more, and that women have to have many more, much more flexibility by going right back to work. Women who read that section, young women who work for me, say, "Listen, I would have agreed with her until I had my baby." But <laughs> <laughs> but, those, right. but those maternal bonds are very strong. I didn't mm-hmm. want to give that up. I you know I wanted to have, I wanted to be home, and even if my husband were home, it didn't mean that I didn't want to be there as well. You know what's also strong, this is Leanne, is that men feel like they should be providers still. That's a very strong instinct. It is, but, you know, fathers are better now than they were. I think that my generation was the beginning. Yeah. Uh, but But I do, as I watch young fathers now, I was just out with my granddaughters in San Francisco, and all the couples that were at the soccer game were dividing up about who was going to be at this field for the six-year-old and who was going to be at that field for the nine-year-old. <laughs> and the fathers were very much a part of that. And they were organizing the kids, and, and, the, and, and, the, and the mothers were going to one game, and the fathers were going to another, and then they were all coming together at the end. So I, I do think that this generation is working harder at it, male and female, and that, that it will evolve to a better place, I hope. Let's talk a little bit more about you again, Tom Brokaw, because you seem to be having a lot of fun right now. You're a NBC News special correspondent. Boom, Voice of the Six, Voices of the 60s is a fascinating read. Are you having a lot of fun at this stage in your life? Well, You're a I grandfather. Am. I, You're going yeah. to soccer games and stuff. That must be a blast. <laughs> I, uh, I need to find the uh, dial-down switch, not the dial-up switch. Which oh, I really? Did, I seem to be operating 
at uh, you know the same speed that I was when I was nightly news anchor, and my my life is divided up into more parts, which makes it more difficult in some ways. Oh. But I do like the flexibility that I have. I don't have to be somewhere every night at six thirty. There's even after all these, I've been gone since two thousand and four, December, coming up on three years now, and there's still a conditioning when I plan a trip, for example. I think, oh my God, can I get back? And well, no, wait a minute, I don't have to get back. <laughs> Oh, but we always love to see you back on the news. <laughs> Our guest has been Tom Brokaw. He's, of course, the NBC News special correspondent, former anchor of the Nightly News. His fascinating book, really, if you lived through the 60s or Leon, even if you didn't, you were too young to remember, <laughs> I suggest you read it. It's entitled Boom, Voices of the 60s, Personal Reflections on the 60s and Today's. And it's sort of taking a measure of how far we've gotten and how far we haven't. For any information you want, about Boom, you can go to SatelliteSisters.com. Tom Brokaw, thank you for joining us today on Satellite Sisters. That is all for this show, but be sure to go to our website, our blog, you know where that is, SatelliteSisters.com. For more information about the show, about the sisters, you can email us there. The contest, lots going on. You can find it all at SatelliteSisters.com. Thanks for joining us today, and don't forget, call your Satellite Sisters.